Back home, everyone said I didn't have any talent. They might be saying the same thing over here, but it sounds better in French. Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris. I'm Rachel Kapelkydale. I'm Navkoti Tamarat. And I'm Chris Newens. This week on the pod, we'll be talking about what's been on Chris's mind in the world of Paris this week, and then we'll be diving into the 1951 movie musical, An American in Paris. So Chris, tell us, what's been on your mind this week in terms of Paris? You know, I don't know what you'll think of this question. Like, It, it, it begins with a, um, a small... Uh, a small humble brag. I think you can just call it a humble brag. Mm-hmm. I was. I, I gave a. Uh, I, I gave a talk to a, a bunch of people on a literary tour of uh, Paris Ooh. this week, uh, which was nice. And um, one of the questions that they asked me was, "How do you think that Paris has impacted your writing and your just experience of being a writer?" And so I wanted to like open that up. So how has Paris impacted our writing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it puts the pressure on, doesn't it? Because there's like such a long tradition of uh, American writers in Paris, of Anglophone writers in Paris more generally, if you're going to include people like George Orwell, who Mm -hmm. I guess we might as well. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he was here, briefly. Yeah, he was. When I think about staying in the U.S., I probably would have stayed in New York. And I think that would have been so much pressure in a way that would have been really useless. I would have felt more, I think, more evidently or, yeah, more clearly, like, the the jealousy, the feeling of, like, oh, people are doing better than me, whereas being here makes me feel a little bit cocooned away. Mm. And when I tune into, oh, what are writers in New York doing, it feels like there's a safe distance. Like, oh, yeah, but I'm doing something entirely different. I'm in yeah. Paris. And I do really appreciate having the feeling, even though it's entirely false, I do want to say there are so many Americans in Paris. I'm aware of that. We're doing a podcast about a movie called An American in Paris. I mean, this has been <laughs> happening for a minute, um, but it just gives me that false sense of, I'm just doing writing on my own and it's okay and I'm safe and I'm not actually in direct competition with anybody. I'm 100% in direct competition with lots of people who will continuously you know, supersede me. But yeah, I think it just makes writing feel like it's mine in a way that's really helpful. Um, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I remember I, I had two years in New York after college. Um, I say had because it, did feel like a sentence um, mm. that I had to serve, just kind of where everybody on the East Coast went to right after after college. Um, and I remember somebody got uh, a job fact checking at the New Yorker, and we were at this party, and everybody was just visibly like loathing this guy while congratulating him. Somebody else got like an unpaid internship at the Atlantic. It was like all of these things that now do not sound that great that were definitely big stepping stones but like being too close to the people i think that we wanted to publish us mm-hmm. um and seeing people like working in these jobs even though those weren't the jobs i wanted i right. like deliberately didn't want to work in publishing um because i thought it would be too hard to get my own writing done so i chose I chose my $500 million film degree instead. (laughs) You know, something that makes me, it makes me think of what you just said, Rachel, that also being in New York right after, especially right after I left my MFA program, it felt like these things should be attainable. I was in New York. You know, there's something called the New Yorker. There's the New York Times. I'm right here. I'm, I'm, I'm physically where I need to be. Why am I not getting those things? Whereas I think having geographical distance 
really brings home to me in a way that I think I need. No, it's something you have to work for. This is not just because you're close by. Mm-hmm. You get to have a publishing deal. Um, and I think that as a dummy, just graduated person, I would have thought maybe, I would have felt worse about myself. I would have felt like I'm already mm-hmm. here. I didn't have the work. Why am I so not published? I yet? think our answers to your mm-hmm. question is basically because it's not New York or London. (laughs) So, I mean, like the main thing that seems to me that you're saying is that it takes the pressure off being here in Paris. Yeah. Um, Yeah, because you know what? The other other thing is that uh, even if you accomplish nothing, you're already accomplishing something. You're living in a foreign language. You're living in a foreign country. Mm -hmm. You know, everything's beautiful. You know, not everything, but like you can make it be well, so not to jump ahead to the uh american in paris bit but the, they told me my painting sucked in america but uh, they told uh-huh. me that here but it sounded better in french yeah 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 because <laughs> um, definitely when i was asked this question i was gonna ask what was your answer um well I'm, i, was I wasn't I, felt... <laughs> <laughs> I had more thoughts <laughs> I, I, so i felt that the what they were angling for was like how does paris inspire you because, I mean, like, there are definitely people who are coming over wanting to be inspired by Paris. And do you think that that is something which is true or if it's literally just a question of, like, vacating a particular vicinity to um, be in another one? To- I think it's really hard for me to imagine writing about Paris because I just feel like so many other writers have done it. What what new thing do I have to bring to the conversation. The only story I've ever written that was set in Paris was about two Ethiopians living together, right? Like, I, I mean, I, I just really feel like I, that's the only time that I feel like, oh, I have knowledge about a community, about a neighborhood that maybe other people don't know about yet. But I feel very strange. It's very strange. I just feel a little bit like I was maybe aping what other people have already done far better than me if I tried to write about the city itself, to describe the city. Um, like, I mean, that's one of the things I think with your writing, Chris, that I find really incredible is that you do find new ways of writing about Paris. Like, and especially Paris and food, like those things seem like they've been covered, but you really do it in a new way. And I think that's really hard to do. And I don't know if I know how to do that. Way to extend that to something he didn't ask about. You know how you write about really tired topics? Not just what you asked him about, <laughs> but the other thing too. <laughs> but, I, but I really do think that's incredible that you can do. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. And uh, Chris does it amazingly. I had a really hard time with it because I knew that I wanted ballerinas to be set in Paris. But uh, the edits I kept getting back from my editor were like, more Paris, more atmosphere, more this. And uh, I mean, just repeating what Naf said uh, <laughs> very appropriately, it is hard to find new ways of seeing Paris, especially because like, in comparison to New York, you know, the restaurants that were there five minutes ago are no longer, are now shut down. Whereas here there are institutions just absolutely everywhere, you know, and they, I mean, funnily enough, like the writing makes them into institutions that make them no longer interesting to write about. Like I'm sure we've all at some point been down to like uh, Le Rotonde and like all of the, you know, Mm -hmm. Hemingway haunts and Montparnasse. And it's just like, yeah, it's a bunch of tourists now, you know. But actually it's a really, I think it's a really great point that the past of New York remains poetic because it is constantly changing and there always is kind of a new past to write about, whereas the past of Paris is storied. And it's literally longer, but also things tend to stay longer. And the institutions really have, you know, like I think about something like the Academy Francaise, right? How many new ways can we talk about how 
the French language is so antiquated and they have a whole body of people mm-hmm. who just it used it. to be five, but they said one was too Americanized, so now it's four. There we go. <laughs> niche joke. <laughs> niche joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think so, something like um and I didn't say this uh, the other night, but something that I have been thinking about recently, and this actually um so I'm just gonna talk about our uh, lives away from the pod. So I've, I've so I've been doing a job mm. for um a, a travel website in which I'm taking photographs for them of things around Paris and like and wherever you go there are like you know a hundred a thousand other people taking photographs of those things. But like because I'm you know doing this job for the website, I'm being paid five euros for each of the photographs that I take. They become kind of like they become stock photography. But it's interesting to me um, how Paris is like this content goldmine, basically, which is effectively um, and it it, it 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 can never run out of being Paris, basically. And in fact, every photograph which is taken just makes it more valuable and makes it more like Paris. So just in terms of that idea of like um, writing about it and it not being new, in some respects, that doesn't matter because it's always going to be new for someone. Um, And there's an amazing amount of just like almost money that can be gleaned from like images of Paris in themselves are worth something which is kind of crazy so when you see a cafe on a street corner it's not just a cafe it's a cafe which could exist on instagram or tiktok and could sell like the paris dream which is in some respects like the same as writing about paris you're just regurgitating this thing Mm. which is immediately valuable i don't know Um, it's also interesting though to think about it in a kind of theoretical context. Um, I can never pronounce this name. I fucked it up in front of my class the other day. Benjamin, mm. Walter Benjamin. I can't do the German. I mean, J. Yeah. yeah. Um, we know But the uh, art and the, the age of mechanical reproduction and this idea that the further we are removed we are from the artist, like the less aura there is mm. to mm. a work of art, and therefore the less value it has, as in a photograph. And it's almost as though with Paris, like the artist, the writer, the whatever, it doesn't matter. It's not the aura of the artist or whoever that matters. It's the aura of the city that people expect to see coming across. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a cafe right on the corner where I often go just because it's convenient. It's not the best cafe in Paris. It's fine. Um, but it's covered on the outside wall with flowers and they're plastic flowers, which has become an increasingly common thing to see on cafes in Paris and hotels and, and like anything dependent on tourism mm-hmm. because they expect that you'll photograph it because from across the street, from even a hundred meters away, it just looked like this cafe is exploding with flowers, right. you know, and they actually redid it uh, all in pink after like during the pandemic, they used the public funds that they received to renovate the cafe it used to be just a normal kind of big boulevard cafe. And now it's like this Audrey Hepburn dream of Paris that uh, you can read the first page of my rant on this for free. Uh, if you go online to Amazon and look at ballerinas, my rant about the, uh, the commodification of Paris. Uh, but it really is like what people expect to see from Paris. I actually think it's become more like like the city has become more like people expect it to be since I've been living here. But I I think it is this sense of uh, each generation building up the myth and because each generation is getting larger, there are more and more people coming. The myth kind of self replicates. Mm. Um, 
to just such a degree that it it becomes almost like Manhattan, except it's not constantly renewing in the same way, you know, but that, that idea of Manhattan just being a place where people don't actually live, mm-hmm. you know, where nobody who actually works in the city can live. Um, I do have a fear of that happening in Paris a little bit um, in terms of prices, in terms of, I mean, even just, you know, 20 years ago, the big street just uh, up the block used to be filled with, I mean, not like, oh, the charming cobbler and whatever, you know, I'm not talking about 100 years ago, but like, you know, they had French shops and they might not have been the fanciest or like the most interesting or whatever, but they were French owned, like individual boutiques. And now you go down there and it's Kiehl's, it's Diptyque, it's, you know, some French brands, it's Lush, it's, you know, it's it's this mixture of international brands that you're going, why do you have to come for, to Paris for this? Mm. And if you go there on a summer, like weekend day, it is so crowded. I have pictures of this where you can't even, it's like, it's like a crowded day in the Metro. You can't even get your elbows out while you're walking down the street. Mm-hmm. And you're just going, why have, why have people come to this glorified version of a shopping mall? But then the funny thing is, is then like even the quote unquote true Paris becomes something which is newly sellable because people look away from those shops and want to find the authentic city, which right. exists sort of yeah. down the street from them. Um, which, yeah, again, has its own economic life and its own kind of like artistic uh, you know, phenomenon around it. Which, I mean, sorry, we're getting a little bit away from how um, <laughs> Paris has inspired our writing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the commodification of Paris has really inspired my writing. Yeah, I mean, and I guess commodification... Look, my next is- book is called <laughs> Keels in Paris. Paris in Keels time. Keels, we are taking sponsors. <laughs> I don't want to like end on kind of too much of a bum note because I think there is still a lot here which is quite inspiring and is quite authentic, especially compared to well, you know, you talk about kind of Manhattan and London, mm-hmm. where which are kind of continually being renewed, um, and the very fact that Paris is not being continually renewed suggests that there still is a, a life here which is authentic, I suppose. Like, um, and you can still find it, maybe not on every block and uh, maybe not in the center, the dead center of Paris, but like beyond that, it does still exist. I don't know for how long, but. Um, You'll find it in Chris's new book, Movable Feasts, <laughs> <laughs> coming out 2025. <laughs> <laughs> Buy our books. We love you. Don't come to Paris. <laughs> So now it's time for This Week in Love, or whatever it is Rachel says. Is that what Rachel says? We're not sure. So I This Week in Love, uh, it, no. So nice to have Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even though she's getting it wrong. The love story <laughs> is uh, An American in Paris, the 1951 musical directed by Vincent Minnelli and starring Gene Kelly and Leslie Caron in her first role. Uh, I did choose this film for the love story this week, uh, remembering it from my childhood as like a version of the French, like the French version of singing in the rain. And uh, to quote the 1988 uh, vice presidential debates, I've served with singing in the rain. I knew singing in the rain, singing in the rain was a friend of mine. Senator, you are no singing in the rain. (laughs) 
I really came here being like, they're going to fucking love it. <laughs> and I'm going to do the negative one. <laughs> oh, way off my mind. I actually thought this was going to be one of your don't criticize topics. Oh, no. I was real worried. And I was like, let me be careful. I talked to Francis about it today. I was like, Rachel loves it, but I don't like it. <laughs> I thought I loved it. I was remembering a mirage. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> oh, I have so many thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get some of those thoughts out there uh, mm-hmm. to begin with, because I believe you both watched this for the first time for the podcast, yes. correct? That's right. That's yeah. absolutely right. And I think we both watched it this morning. Yes, that's, that's <laughs> also right. Nobody so, wants to know how the sausage gets made. <laughs> I, but I want you, but I do want everyone to know it's so fresh. It's fresh in our minds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Piping hot. Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> The ending's a little stale. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure stale's the correct word. Um, it's something. It's it's sure sure as heck. It is calculated. Sure as heck. I've been in the classroom too long. It's sure as hell something. H <laughs> e <laughs> double hockey sticks. <laughs> okay, so this is how this movie gets made. Basically, there's this executive at MGM. His name is Arthur Freed. And uh, he bought the Gershwin musical catalog from, uh, sorry, the George Gershwin catalog from Ira Gershwin. So George Gershwin writes the music. Ira Gershwin writes the lyrics when there are lyrics uh, in the late 40s. And he also wanted to do a movie about Paris. And so one night after a game of pool, sorry, citation unknown, uh, <laughs> he, he, he asks Ira uh, if he can buy the catalog to uh, George's estate and for, for use in a movie. And uh, Ira says, yeah, if all the music is George's, uh, which is how we end up with this movie, actually. So uh, MGM pays about $300,000 for the songs uh, and another fifty grand to Ira to revise the lyrics to make them fit in this seamless story. Good job, Ira. <laughs> Listen, that's called business negotiation and I salute you. Oh, I mean, uh, God, the Gershwins were amazing at businessing. Um, just really top-notch in that department. Uh, in the meantime, um, in 1951, or sorry, uh, earlier than that, in the 40s, the late 40s, we have the British film, The Red Shoes, which ends with a 17-minute ballet. So all of these things are swirling around in the producer's head. And he's like, I spent a really absurd amount of money for some songs that I don't know what to do with. I want to make a movie about Paris. And also, the 17-minute ballet movie was weirdly successful. And uh, yeah, that's really all we need to know. Um, so we'll see you next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Au revoir. <laughs> so basically the film gets structured uh, entirely around the Gershwin songs. This is how it's written. The songs are classics now. I Got Rhythm. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Our Love is Here to Stay. Some of these get used later in Funny Face. Uh, oh, that's what I, Okay, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, so again, this is 1951. Um Kelly choreographs Kelly choreographs the entire film, uh, which you can really tell if you look at some of his other uh, choreography. Uh, he's an incredible dancer. Uh, he's astounding, incredibly sexy, mm-hmm. and his smile oh, could save lives. Kill me. 
Um, the, the, we said the same thing, but differently. Using <laughs> <laughs> very different metaphors. Save lives or lose them. <laughs> so, You've also got an amazing bum. That, honestly, three and a half From all the dancing. This, from all the dancing. Yeah. I've danced a bunch. My butt does not look like that. Gene Kelly. <laughs> I've never seen you tap. <laughs> and you shouldn't. It's best, it's best to keep it that way. Some secrets in a relationship help that relationship. Yeah. <laughs> so I did spend the first year of high school in a performing arts school uh, where I had to take a course in tap, C+. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, when it comes to videos of that leaking or videos of my African dance C-plus leaking, Ooh. I'll tell you what, I'll take tap every day of the week every and day. twice on Sundays. One of the things that I really felt watching this movie was like, yeah, tap's really out now, isn't it? Like, I mean, it used to be so in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it has its moments and it's related to particularly charismatic individuals. Gene Kelly is one up until about 1960-ish. And then later we get Gregory Hines, who brings it back. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the two. That's it. There can be only two. Because you need someone with a brilliant smile. So you're like, okay, I got that. And then you watch the feet go really quickly. You're like, oh my God. And you're just going back and forth, back and forth, like brilliant teeth. No, you know what it is? It's like the relaxed elegance, the relaxed precision where it's, mm. so it's related to the smile. It's like this ease That's it. of it that you're just like, they would be amazing in bed. Yeah. I, I also think it, it's very weird though that it, it it's like such a movie phenomenon tap dancing uh, there's a lot of tap dancing in this movie in case um yeah that wasn't obvious <laughs> yeah um that's true you never really see it on stage I mean, but on stage i can imagine it really working but presumably and somehow i think rachel has talked to me about this before <laughs> probably like you know what you're watching you're I'm assuming it's just the phony department who are just sort of watching the feet and yep. kind of like, you know, <laughs> like putting the taps in. No, that's so, exactly right because yeah. uh, they're lip syncing yeah, uh, yeah. to what's basically pre-recorded uh, right. uh, singing. And uh, of course you can't have like the onset noises and things like that mm -hmm. going on in the background. So yeah, yeah so these a, are fully sounds. A massive part of what makes tap great is just sort of fictional in movies i don't mm. know like and so if you were watching it live i can really see how uh, a tap could be i mean not really exciting i'm not getting super uh, excited. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, chris's sexual education was accompanied by one of those dog clickers <laughs> 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 Every time he did something good, the one was just like click. That's becoming Chris's catchphrase. Rachel, I told you that. So before we go any further, let's go quickly through the plot. Such, a, such as it is. It will take. Honestly, if Rachel narrated the whole film, it would take five minutes. Keep going. Okay, so we have. Jerry Mulligan, Gene, Gene Kelly. Kelly. Um, <laughs> Just call him Gene Kelly. That's basically who he is. Who's a former GI living in Paris after the war. And this was a real thing. I actually wrote my master's thesis. Oh, cheers. <laughs> <laughs> Foley sound department there, getting a little enthusiastic. Um, on this topic, uh, or, or that was an angel being like, stop. <laughs> Save yourself. First warning. <laughs> Don't mention how much your PhD cost. <laughs> we have had it. <laughs> In that, uh, actually, a lot of American uh, 
actors and actresses end up in films in France after the war. Mm. Uh, Miss America ends up in um, Touche pas au Crispy, which means don't touch the loot, which is a Jean Gabin film. Oh. Um, film. <laughs> Excuse me. The only Miss America I know is Vanessa Williams. And I was like, wow, how old is she? <laughs> Jesus. Um, yeah, there are there are other like just kind of unknown actors in America who end up making careers here. So being an artist of some kind is not unusual uh, for GIs and Miss Americas after the war. <laughs> Miss Americas <laughs> crucial to the war effort. Um, so he is trying to make it as an artist. Uh, Chris's quote from earlier in the episode still applies. He's friends with a pianist uh, called Adam Cook, played by Oscar Levant, who works with Henri, who's played by Georges Goutry, who's a singer. So just to get this straight, Jerry is an artist. He's our, he's our hero, somehow. And he, he's, he's friends with this unnecessary pianist who is friends and uh, collaborators in the non-war sense with this French singer, right? The French singer has a girlfriend who is played by Leslie Caron. Now, Maurice Chevalier was actually considered for the uh, rumor has it uh, from my old MGM friends for the part of <laughs> Henri. Me and Louis back in the studio. <laughs> Just kind of changing quips and cigars. <laughs> so who do you think is going to be in uh, Liza's dad's movie? I, I said this movie won't work. It's just a couple together, a bunch of stuff of other ideas. That's, that's racist. <laughs> Your American accent. Oh. <laughs> nah, I like the so Marie Chevalier was considered for this role, but there were issues surrounding... For the singer? For the singer. Okay. Uh, with the I'll Build the Stairway to Paradise okay. uh, bit. He'd have been great. He'd have been great. But there were issues in which they weren't sure whether he'd collaborated during the war. There were rumors about this. Oh, shit. Okay. And uh, this movie's being put together in the late 40s and 1950 in particular. So we're like five years, four years and a bit, like away from the end of the war. So this is a really serious thing that, especially for a movie that highlights Paris, like you don't want that to necessarily be an issue. In a movie which the war is mentioned. Right. Um, so basically, Jerry is selling his paintings on the street mm -hmm. uh, when he meets heiress uh, Milo Roberts, who is played by Nina Falk. Now, Sarah Churchill, Churchill's daughter, was considered for this role, oh. um, which would have been interesting. And she is definitely that same type. Mm -hmm. um, but they went a different way. They went with an American rather than a Brit. Um, she invites him to dinner, but uh, he goes to dinner thinking it's a dinner party. And it turns out that she doesn't necessarily just want to buy his paintings. She's interested in more. But he's worried that he's going to become a kept man. And this is a threat to his masculinity. And in fact, there's an MGM memo to studio head Louis B. Mayer mm -hmm. from the, um, the Hayes office, the... Uh, production code association that says that the VCA had only one objection to the script, which is that the it should be made clear that in quotes no illicit sex affair uh, existed between Jerry and Milo. Oh, sex affairs. Oh, those sex affairs. They will get you banned in Alabama every that single quick. time. That right quick, as <laughs> quick as a Foley tap. <laughs> also, isn't Jerry what? Weren't American soldiers during the war called Jerry's, or was that someone? That's the gentleman. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> 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 
but maybe it's an interesting commentary on how we're secretly supposed to hate him. I was going to say, well, I I was going to say, like, they couldn't even give him a real first name. They just gave him the nickname, but nope, that's not what happened. (laughs) His his name's just G. Yeah, (laughs) G.I. So then uh, to kind of prove that she's on the up and up, she takes him out to dinner with his friends. Now, this is when he meets Lise, which he's incapable of pronouncing. He can only say Lisa. Mm -hmm. Now, Lise... And meets, again, big air quotes there. Uh, he stares at her from across the room. Gene Kelly, at this point, do we want to take a guess at his age? I'd say about 40. 39, not bad. Leslie yeah. Carroll, we want to take a guess at her age? 18. 19, and the, the character is also 19. So he's staring at her from across the room. She's at dinner with, like, friends of her parents. She's busy. She's <laughs> not in- – I, I cannot describe enough – she is so not giving him any sort of vibe or signal. None. Yeah. He is zero. Gazing over his own table across their other table. Gazing is too light a That's word. True. I'm being too nice to him. Well, He's serial killer looking at her. And this gorgeous ass rich woman has taken him out to dinner. And <laughs> and she and he's just like completely With ignoring. Age appropriate. Yeah. And wealthy and, and beautiful. Everybody at his own table. He's being so right. fucking rude and impolite. And then, and then he goes over to her, like the Lisa character's table, and he pretends like he knows her already. She is very clear that they do not know each other. Somehow he just kind of yanks her up and starts to dance with her. She is not into it. Her, uh, her body language and her language language are no thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She says no a number of times. <laughs> yes. Over and over again. She does. Uh, she sits back down at the table and he's like, I forgot your number. She gives him a fake number. The people at her table correct her as though she's forgotten her number and is not deliberately giving out a fake number. I guess this is not a known trick yet. I will see also that it's the dude at her table who's like, oh, dude, yeah, of course. Four, it is. Five, four, five. And she's like, thanks, I, my I just friend. Want to stand up for the, uh, the other guys at the table. Um, it's a woman and a man. The yeah, woman but- says nothing. She does say nothing, but doesn't the other guy, I mean, maybe he's in on it, but he thinks that uh, Gene Kelly knows Lisa. He does. That's yes, true. I guess. do think that. I mean, I don't know why I'm standing up for this random guy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I'm so begrudging about, again, he's fictitious. a man who made 75 bucks as an actor <laughs> playing this one, like, one line. I don't, want, I don't want to even give it this to him. <laughs> okay, so he's very aggressive. Ugh. Meanwhile, Henri, the singer, the friend of a friend, the friend of the unnecessary friend, yeah. is uh, going to the United States. So he tells Lisa this. He wants to marry her. He wants to take him with him. Now, break to, um, <laughs> this is from Wikipedia, but the description was just too good. Adam humorously daydreams he's performing Gershwin's concerto in F for piano and orchestra in a concert hall. I was hoping you were going to mention this. Yeah. Thing. Humorously is used quite loosely there. Oh, God. It's, it's circa 25 minutes. Is what I, like. <laughs> I, know, I have some thoughts about this. Okay. I thought like, um, so it, it, it's like an interval in the movie. Yeah. It's, it, you know. But it doesn't say intermission. So you don't know if you can go pee or not. <laughs> You're forced to sit there. And also everyone in the orchestra is Adam. So the people, yes. Yes. every instrument and the conductor and the piano, everything is being played by Adam. Keep going, Chris. Sorry. Oh, hold on. Let's just to, to give a little bit more context. This uh, friend who 
Rachel is completely right. Has no purpose in the plot. Mm-hmm. Like he, he does nothing apart from maybe being an intermediary between the two sort of characters, I guess. Yeah. So it's not that you fuck your best friend's girlfriend. Yeah, it's yeah. that you like right. fuck somebody that your friend knows. Girlfriend. Yeah, he is in Paris. He's another American in Paris. Um, he's there on fellowships, which did yeah. feel also like shots fired. I was like, oh, calm down. We all have to find a way. <laughs> um, and he's so he's he's there on fellowships. He's a classical pianist. Um, dreaming of becoming a professional classical pianist but he keeps the only way that he can earn money is by getting these fellowships and so he's there in this in intermission part in which he's just dreaming of actually being a classical pianist instead of just being there on the fellowships and just practicing piano but weirdly not a pianist a conductor well he wants to be everything in the audience. he's everything yeah and it's so dull but yeah. we'll talk about that. I actually I like mean, this scene. So white, uh, white boomer man dreams in the 50s. <laughs> <laughs> they would be dull for the 50s. Yeah. I like the mu- I thought the, the music was cool. Like, no one's mad at the music in this movie, I think, right? We're not mad right. at the music or the dancing. Right. We're mad at, well, no. we're mad at everything else. Let's summarize the movie. So, first, uh, <laughs> so Jerry calls up Lisa on the, uh, sorry, Lise, on the number that uh, he's gotten, and she's like, no, I never want to hear from you again. Can I just say, also, it's her place of employment. He calls her fucking job. And, and she's like, no, thank you. And then he shows up there. At her job. This is like the er, uh, say anything. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Where he's like, I don't want any help. They said only you can help me. And like, <sighs> somehow... Through the magic of movie chemistry that Chris gives so much credence to, she agrees to see him. And it really does feel like at some point, Leslie looks at the script. She's like, oh, and this is where I'm supposed to love him. (laughs) Like, it's that mechanical. The chemistry, I'm going to just put myself out there. Nothing. It's negative. Nothing. This is the type of movie that ruined a generation of men. Yeah. That was just like, if you're aggressive enough... She'll know you've they earned it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. There's absolutely no hint before that stage. That Nothing. Maybe she is just saying no in a playful, coquettish way or because she has to say right. no. She never she gives just, us that air. She's stony-faced, <laughs> like, get out of my life. Yeah. Go she's just like, hi, creepy foreign stranger. Exactly. No, which, thank you. Which, spoiler, is the correct reaction. <laughs> Up until then, I'm with Lisa. I'm like, yeah, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> But then we get the world-famous, oft-repeated scene by the Sen. Right. um, Where somehow they fall in love? Question mark? (laughs) (laughs) We have all watched this movie. What does he say to her in that scene as well? It's like, you know, you've got a pretty face, but maybe those still waters don't run so deep after all. That's what it is. He he says to her- The original negging. (laughs) He he says to her, I can't tell if you're a woman of mystery- or if still waters don't run that deep. Translation, I can't tell if you have secrets or if you're a fucking moron. And she's like, oh, la, la. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, ladder, yeah. I want to marry you. <laughs> yeah, he goes on by saying, let me tell you, when a book's got a bounding this pretty, people are going to want to know what's inside. And her response, <laughs> which is so understandable, is, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> he's like, you know when you want to come all over a book. <laughs> and she's like, we? Ah. She really is like, I don't, is this a compliment? <laughs> right. Basically, though, she has to say goodbye because she's decided to go to America with Henri. Right. Uh, she's always she, been in a relationship with. But he also took care of her during the war. So her parents leave. Oh, her. We, but we don't know that at this stage, do we? Or 
Oh, you're right. We don't find out until later. You're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, because why would we need to know any of her backstory or anything about her? That's true. Other than that she's uh, fuckable. Yeah. yeah. And uh, possibly blank pages. Yeah. Can only be filled with cum. Dum, dum, dum. Yeah. <laughs> Please cut that. Um, it's too gross. <laughs> my, my hands feel gross now. I don't know why. <laughs> don't think about it too hard. I hope my therapist isn't listening. <laughs> okay. So Jerry's like, Okay, I guess I'll be with the rich, beautiful American who's super into me and not the French girl who hated me until five minutes ago is in a long-term relationship and planning to move to a different continent. Chris has his contrarian face on. No, no, I just want to point out that like, the reason that he doesn't want to be with the rich, beautiful American woman who's super into him is not just because he's not into her, but because he doesn't want to be a kept man. Like that's very important, right? Yeah. Um, and I did think that there was an interesting, there is an interesting dynamic going on in this film, if I can say that at all, um, which is that, you know, she's pursuing him, even though he's completely rebuffing her in the same way that he's pursuing uh, the Lee's character, despite the fact that she's completely rebuffing him. But it's equally inexplicable. She's so rich and gorgeous and has everything. And she, and they mentioned, one of her friends mentions like, oh, you always love these starving artists and you always pick them up. That's everyone in Paris. This man is a fucking dick to you. And she's like, we oh, I, a penny. Yeah, <laughs> there are other people who have finely muscled buttocks <laughs> that she might want to sponsor. Because by the way, she's not just like rich. She's actively working for him. She's got him a gallery space. Like she got him a studio space. She yeah. gets him a gallery show. And he's like, oh. Studio space, which is, as I said in a text earlier, inexplicably in New York. Like, yeah. It's, in it's the a, friend's apartment, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's before they painted it purple. A lot of the set design, I'm assuming, is entirely shot in LA. We'll get there. But, uh, <laughs> Don't worry. The set design is, is great and it really looks like Paris. But, um, well, kind of looks like Paris, kind of looks like a French village. But this mm. particular studio space that she gets in is a New York loft apartment. But anyway. <laughs> yep. Yep. And so, um, and Jerry decide, like, have to say goodbye. And they're at this art student ball for some reason to have somewhere else to go, presumably. Well, well also because they all dress in black and white. Yep. And it's very important for us to understand yep. how cute Gene Kelly is. Right. And that contrasts with what's about to come up. Which is um, the fantasy ballet sequence. Can I just say something? Before that happens, we have his best friend saying to the rich lady, basically, like, I know what you're doing. Like, he says something kind of cutting to her. Yeah. And she's like, I want you to know that I'm the rich patron you're, you know, insulting. He's like, I know. And then they make out. They should. That's how it should that have ended. Have. But then she gets offended because she sees that he's after yeah. Lee's. And right. then we cut to, I just want to make it right. clear that a story is happening. And we just put a stop to it. Okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, Liz and Jerry are saying goodbye, and Henri overhears them right. and is like, "Oh my gosh, I'm so moved, uh -huh. but uh, I don't know what to do. The lady is mine." Right. And then Gene Kelly is like, "I must express myself <laughs> through the magic of dance and art." So we have a 17-minute ballet that cost four hundred fifty thousand dollars to film. It's the most expensive musical number ever to date, in which uh, we go through sets uh, in which. Kelly is fantasizing, you know, Carol mm -hmm. dancing, um, that are based on the works, respectively, of Dufy, Renoir, Utrillo, Rousseau, Van Gogh, and Toulouse-Lautrec, some of whom are more famous than others yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and more immediately recognizable. Um, 
And at the end of the musical, uh, there's a one minute left of the movie. I was counting. Yeah, yeah the, the feed that I had, like, instead <laughs> of like you know shortened movie. Like I swear to God, Chris, I checked too. I really did. I was like, this can't be a, a motion picture. <laughs> one movie left in the film. Henri lets the trapped Lise out of his car, and she runs up the steps of a Montmartre staircase into the arms of Jean Kelly, who she hated like 30 minutes ago, 17 minutes of which were a fantasy ballet. Right. And, and by the way, then, it's the end. I, the nothing, end. We never, so we never go back to the rich patron. We never go back to the fucking, like, you know, spurned singer. No mention of that best friend who clearly was just not a necessary character. We're done with the movie. Yeah. The whole movie. Which, by the way, is not a short movie. It's close to two hours long. <laughs> so... I want to say at this point, um, we have some very experienced workers on this film. Mm -hmm. This should have been a better film. Right. Right. Vincent Minnelli. Liza's dad. Yeah. They, he's just divorced Judy Garland. Mm -hmm. Liza's already been born yeah. at this point. Mm -hmm. um, they met on the set of Meet Me in St. Louis, which is a 1944 film. Uh, he's already done Father of the Bride. Later, he'll do Brigadoon. He'll do Gigi, which uh, is coming up in a future episode. Um Kelly has not yet done Singing in the Rain. So at this point, he's mostly famous for pairings with Judy Garland, interestingly enough. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's not a coincidence. That's how he gets looped in with Minnelli. So things like For Me and My Gal in 42, The Pirate in 48, Summerstock. He's done a few dramatic roles. Um, he started dancing at a young age, but was so bullied for it that he quit. It wasn't until he was about 15 that his, and his parents opened a dance studio uh, and he was kind of confident enough that he began dancing again. By that point, he was an accomplished athlete. So you really, you really, he's often praised, and I think rightfully so, for the athleticism of his dancing. Um, and uh, he's dancing on Broadway, and he's starring in Pal Joey in 1940 when he signs, signs with David O. Selznick, okay. the infamous producer. Leslie Caron, uh, on the other hand, this is her first film. Her family actually lost its wealth during World War II, um, which is probably a morally good thing. I don't know any details on that, but uh, if you're in France during World War II and you're making money... That's the, yeah, <laughs> and so um, the family couldn't had been wealthy, couldn't provide a dowry for her, and so in an interview later, she said, "My mother said there's only one profession that leads you to marrying money, becoming a princess or duchess, and that's ballet." My grandfather whispered heavily, "Margaret, you want your daughter to be a whore." <laughs> Just a very 19th century view, um, and Margaret is actually the name because Carol is half American, uh, her mother's American, which. Honestly, she should have a better accent, but uh, perhaps they're playing it up for this film, but I've never heard her without the kind of strong French accent. Right. And this is not Leslie's, um, how do I say this nicely? It's not her best acting. Right. Because it's her first movie. Because it's very clear also that they were like, oh, 75% <laughs> of the way through the movie, they were like, oh shit, we should give her some backstory. Right. I, I thought you were going to say 75% of the way, they were like, should we call Audrey Hepburn? No, she's busy. <laughs> she's busy. Let's stick with Leslie. <laughs> no, we don't know who she is yet. <laughs> As you say, it's interesting. You don't really know who the love interest is supposed to be until about like 20, 30% of the way through. And I'd yeah. argue I'm still not certain. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, Gene Kelly. So originally Sid Charisse, who's an American dancer and an age-appropriate like mid-30s, was supposed to take on this role. But Gene Kelly was like, no, I, he's known for his perfectionism. He was a Virgo and wants to, 
That says a lot, yeah. Wants to have a real Parisian dancer. And he had seen Leslie at the age of 17 in the Ballet de Champs-Élysées. Uh, and he convinced the studio to fly her over to audition. So two years later, when the film's actually made, uh, she arrives in Hollywood. She has like zero sense of the amount of control that Hollywood studios have over their actors. So two weeks before shooting starts, she cuts all her hair off in a pixie. And <laughs> she wanted because she, she wanted to look like a contemporary Parisian model, and the studio freaks out. She said she faced frantic phone calls in a firing squad. Um, and when she arrived on set, they told her they fire. Uh, I'm sorry, Kelly told her, I guess they fire girls for less than that, you know. <laughs> so they wait two weeks. They hold shooting for two weeks for her hair to grow out like a little bit. <laughs> Short? I know, so curious. It's just quite short in the movie. Interesting how the studio system and K-pop are kind of slightly linked. Not dissimilar, yeah. (laughs) Sorry, they waited three weeks um, to for it to to grow out. Just a small correction there. So, um, yeah, they end up filming it in Hollywood, where Caron ends up living for twenty years. Does it shock you that it was filmed in Hollywood? Uh, Chris has already pointed out. No. Well, one of the things that I love, one of the cuts in the movie, because obviously it begins with uh, authentic images of Paris. Um, and then there's one cut in the middle of all of the uh, the scenes of, you know, things happening around Hollywood studio set Paris, in which um, supposedly Gene Kelly's character is painting the Seine, but you only see him from behind. Yeah. And I was like, hold on, that's actually in Paris. Yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> well, loved that. Yeah. Actually, so you're right that there is, it's the opening montage and some of the long shots of the monuments. But in fact... The stairs are also in Paris. They are not. They're not. Okay. I have document un, unsighted documentation that I would never accept from my students <laughs> if they're listening. Um, but the, oh, here's what's shot in Paris. The opening montage, the long shots of Parisian landmarks, um, a tracking shot when Milo's car drives up to her hotel for some reason, oh. and um, some atmospheric backgrounds. So I'm assuming that when we see him in front of the Seine, they shot the Seine, but then it was green screen. Right. No, no, I think because I think you only see... His, I mean, I, I'd like to say that I could recognize that ass anyway. <laughs> Give us a few more movies. <laughs> but he's wearing quite loose-fitting trousers at that stage. Yeah. I think, Boom. It's, <laughs> I, think, I think it's just an actor <laughs> pretending to be him in front of the set. Um, there were one or two green, green screen bits, which were definitely kind of like, obviously green mm. screen with Paris in the background, but that yeah. one I think was not green screened. I don't think, it's the scene I'm thinking about, I don't think so either, but yeah. So actually the final scene of the film, uh, because Kelly and Corona are running towards each other on what looks like multiple flights of stairs, mm-hmm. as the Montmartre stairs are, you know, you have a flight, a landing, a flight. Um, this is actually, for whatever reason, it, they're like, yeah, spend half a million dollars on that weird ballet bit, but <laughs> no landings. It, we need one set of stairs and special effects in a Hollywood backlog. <laughs> It makes zero sense. I am only like 30% convinced that they knew how the movie was going to end when they were shooting the stuff in Paris. Enough. <laughs> and uh, Fair enough. So they end up uh, having to do that. Um, the reception to this is unanimously like over the moon enthusiastic. Variety says that Variety, the major trade publication of Hollywood, Gershwin's music gets boffo treatment throughout. Boffo is Variety's 
biggest praise in this era. Slang for buffoon. No. Okay. It it just means great in variety terms, even though they take up the same letter space. Um, So it's uh, in the end, the movie the movie took five months to shoot, which is really about twice as long as a normal feature length film takes to shoot, and a lot more than uh, takes back in the studio system days, and you can turn it out. Uh, It cost two point seven million in nineteen fifty one dollars. It but it grossed more than eight million. Uh, It wins Best Picture at the Academy Awards of nineteen fifty one. It wins the Best Picture at Golden Globes. Um, Minnelli's nominated for Best Director. It wins for Best Story and Screenplay by Alan J. Lerner. Excuse me? <laughs> he might have written, what, six full paragraphs? <laughs> what screenplay? Or he was like, ballet part. <laughs> Orchestra daydream. Yeah. Oh, Gene dancing and singing songs that I didn't write. Yo, he yep. used to pay to be a writer. So, um... Yep. <laughs> Couldn't have a bad day, 1950s. Um, it also wins, I think, deservedly so at this point, for art direction, cinematography, costume design. Fair. Those I'll give them. Fair. Fine. Like in color. Yeah. Like, right? Like, because at this point, there are color and uh, black and white categories. Um, it's Kelly's only Oscar, actually, and they make a special award for him. It's the Academy Honorary Award, his versatility as an actor, singer, director, and dancer. Although he didn't direct it. Mm. And specifically for his brilliant achievements in the art of choreography on film. And the choreography is pretty great, I mean, as we've discussed. Oh, it's extraordinary. Wow, so they made it. So I didn't know that the Oscars did special Oscars except for like lifetime achievement. Yep. No, they did in 1951. But the thing is that this reputation has continued to today. An American Paris was ranked number 68 on the American Film Institute's 1997 list of the 100 greatest American movies of all time. It is, in 2005, it's ranked ninth on their greatest movie musicals list. Um, The National Board of Review has put it in the top 10 films. The Writers Guild of America, the Writers Guild, has nominated it, sorry, named it the best written American musical Although those modifiers do make me go, hmm. But I'm, you know what's crazy too? It's like Gene Kelly has Singing in the Rain, which is such an excellent movie. You right. know, even if you want to just give love to Gene Kelly, there's another movie that's so good. That's Coming out next year. That's just it. wait a year. That's a musical. And so all these lists, what are you talking about? I know. Um, and then, did you guys know that they revived this in Paris as a stage musical in 2014? No. Yeah. And people loved it. But they actually said it right after the war, which I think makes a big difference. At, le- like at least a, a little difference. It makes a little difference. just after the war, though, right? I mean, six years is different okay. from immediately after the war. You know, she might be more desperate to be with an American at that point. You know, to have some kind of security that right. they could go back to the states if things got bad again. And weirdly, I'd be a lot more forgiving of this as a stage show. I think because I'd be really focused mm. on singing and dancing. Mm-hmm. I think it really is the Trojan horse of a motion picture that's fooled me. I was like, oh, I can't wait for this cinematic experience. What? Yeah. I mean, well, hold on, wait. I, I do think that it, it is a great cinematic experience. I mean, like, it is a great <laughs> cinematic experience. Okay. I think. That like, and while I was watching it on my laptop this morning mm-hmm. on my sofa, right, your cinematic experience. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I, I was thinking like I can imagine it, it would feel like a real event because there are so many like huge mm-hmm. scenes of massive color and dancing and excitement and this 
mystical imagined idea of Paris right. all kind of merged together yeah. within it. And I could imagine going to the cinema and being like, wow, I've, I've been on a journey. I've experienced yes. something. And, and there's also, I think it's really important to point out too, that like cinema is it's so cheap to go to. So people are going to this movie who there's no way they would ever go to the symphony or the ballet, like to have that ability. They may not even be in large towns. That's not plugged into anything. And also two additional factors. There was just a world war and there's no internet. And I do think those things kind of explain a lot of the popularity as well. <laughs> right. But I think one of the reasons that it's getting these awards is a slightly condescending, like, ah, oh, you brought dance and music to the masses, you know. And that was Gene Kelly's big thing, right? Like right. he wanted to bring the musical back into Absolutely. But I think that we see him doing that so much better in later work. For sure. I mean, this is uh, this is an attempt and I think it's worth acknowledging i don't think it merits these places on the list that's the thing it's that's that's what baffles me it doesn't baffle me that audiences at the time would have loved it yes it baffles me that its reputation continues to be untarnished i really went into this this morning being like i can't wait to be blown away yeah and i'm sure that didn't help either right i had unbelievably high expectations <laughs> and i couldn't believe it it was just it was I, I, yeah i just kept being like i'm Okay. Okay. It's a satire? Oh, no. It's truly, this is it. But critics still love it. It has 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, but only a 79% audience rating because 21% of people are brave enough as well, we I, I to be to, like, yeah. what the fuck? I mount a slight defense of it, like, um, in the sense that, okay, I think that the sexual politics are, like, mad. Mm -hmm. um, but what I would say um is that there is quite a kind of first of all it's very difficult to know how it's going to end while you're watching it <laughs> <laughs> that's because the story makes no sense that is an understatement okay yeah don't i don't disagree uh -huh. but, you know maybe it's an accident um but there was uh, like a degree of tension that I felt while watching it and I was like you did not feel tension I, Christopher I, 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 what tension did you feel I felt like I just because I didn't know how this story was going to possibly be resolved I mean as I said like you didn't know who the love interest was really like but that didn't was, frustrate you you actually got into it no it, it frustrated me I felt on edge <laughs> but not, not in a good way I there we go like, okay oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, was, I, I was unsure it was I don't know what I, I felt unsafe. I felt unsafe. Like, it was like watching a horror movie. <laughs> Did it trigger you? <laughs> to a certain extent, you were like, how, how could this situation, which he gets himself in, and I just want to kind of reiterate, so it's Gene Kelly has his, um, like, you know, American, this American woman who's um, backing him, and then this woman who he's fallen in love with is engaged to be married to somebody else. But it's very possible that the person who's engaged to be married to the, uh, this other person could go away with them. It's very possible that he could suddenly see the person, this heiress who is backing him in another way. There's probably more chemistry between him right. and her than there is. Yeah, like, is it like a Casablanca, is. like, love the one you're with and, like, somehow save the artistic world type yeah, thing? So it did keep me guessing, at the very least. And I thought that, in fact, the scene in... It's not quite the middle of the movie, I suppose. It's kind of like moving into the third act where um, he's there with... Because um, they all hang out in the same cafe, right? Like him, um, his you know, pianist friend who has no purpose in the plot and um, the other guy who's going to be married to Lisa. They all hang out in the same cafe. And when it's like discovered... When he discovers that... Um, 
it, in fact, it's only the pianist friend who knows that it's the same woman who Gene Kelly is in love with uh, is the one who's going to get married right. to this other guy. Also a trope that occurs on Friends, where uh, Chandler is the only one who knows and says, by the way, what's the name of the girl that you're dating? And he likes the same name together and he goes, bye. And I argue one of the only actually genuinely funny moments is that friend kind of like unable to handle. <laughs> yeah. Like that really is the only time that I laughed out loud. Spilling his coffee down his front. Yeah, uh, getting brandy, <laughs> drinking the other person's sherry. And I think that's genuinely, that's a really good scene. Right. Uh, and no, then, I agree. No, no, I agree. You're absolutely right. And then when they start saying it's wonderful, they, they start singing it's wonderful. Right. Like together, these two men who are both in love with the same woman. They don't know that they're both in love with the same woman singing a duet together about it being wonderful being in love with her. That's quite. That's a good scene. Like that's that's good. I don't like it when he puts the little kerchief on his head to show that he's the woman. <laughs> yeah, it was important for us to know. Obviously, yeah, because otherwise, when right. there's two men dancing. <laughs> oh, horrible no i agree i think that it's a good scene unfortunately it happens too late in the movie for me to care. Like, at that point i was like i hope he dies i really was like <laughs> maybe jerry will collapse i just i hate it oh yeah jerry was awful jerry, i mean it, it, there was a lot of things which reminded me of paris blues in this uh, oh we got it yeah well the thing is that the, the only reason that we like jerry is because he's played by gene kelly that's it, exactly that is the only reason if he didn't dance to why, like him why care yeah. yeah that's it or have that smile Oh, that uh, smile isn't rejuvenating. That, the opening scene as well, when he's in his apartment, his very small apartment, and he's sort of... Ah, uh, yes. It feels very Jack feels real. It feels very Jack Tati, though, right? Like yeah. the kind of the contractions and like... Because also yeah. you see Basically, him... to describe this scene right. in this audio medium... Right, sorry. <laughs> uh, he has such like a small apartment that he has like a super narrow single bed that uh, he like rolls up to the ceiling, uh, reels up to the ceiling yeah. during the day and then like has his the kitchen stuff or bathroom stuff that comes out of the closet uh, in the corner. He's probably got eight square meters, like maybe 20 square feet. So you get kind of a, a, a little bit of a sense of already, oh wow, this person really knows how to move. Just like him, right? Him maneuvering that space. The, yeah. the, 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 the room. It's really amazing. beautifully like it's it, and i was like when i saw that i was like oh right i, I was really excited for something really special I was so excited yeah. i was so young back then <laughs> <laughs> oh. i'm older now oh God, remember when i thought it was gonna be a good movie <laughs> this is nafkozak who swears by uh, moulin rouge this is one of the great movies okay so here's no, no 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 i knew why 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 did you do that rouge, and i was prepared to Jay, okay, <laughs> everybody, rally round. No, because it, Moulin no, Rouge, no, <laughs> because Moulin Rouge is supposed to be a bad movie. It's supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> I will be <laughs> I have unplugged Naps mic. I will do it for all of us if required. <laughs> So what I was going to say is that the other thing that shouldn't like, be underestimated. No, no, no you may not. No, you're not. Like, Moulin Rouge is a bad movie. <laughs> it's supposed to be a bad movie. This this won an Oscar. <laughs> Guys, it won Best Picture. That's why this is an unacceptable. Moulin Rouge is terrible. We didn't know that. It's a soap opera. Moving on. The a moment of silence there for uh, yeah. I actually admitted that. <laughs> of course. But I never said it was good. I just said I really enjoyed it. Roll the tape. We haven't. It's an audio medium. We can roll the tape. <laughs> also, I think my microphone now is actually fucked up. <laughs> oh no! It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Oh no! It's on. It's fucked up, but I'm okay with that <laughs> at this point. The last point that I wanted to make is just the opening scenes to this are uh, three voiceovers 
three separate voiceovers mm-hmm. from the perspectives of Gene Kelly, um, the pianist friend, and I think Henri, although it took me a long time to twig that. Because for a while I was like, is it the guy who's running the cafe? I the same thing. Because it's not thing. like a single yeah. shot. Um, that take probably 15 minutes in total. Yeah. So the first 15 minutes of this movie is voiceover, which as cinephiles, we hate. Mm-hmm. And the last 17 minutes are a ballet. And like seven minutes in the middle are this imaginary, like masturbatory circle jerk of a conducting session. Um, so it's really true that there's about six minutes of uh, actual writing in this, which uh, the, uh, yeah. Something I did also want to say too is that the title is to me the so appropriate because what I felt again and again in this movie was that's why they hate Americans. Because really what we love about Paris is being like, look at us. Look at me dance. Look at me play with your kids. It just felt like the worst of American showmanship. Because all the French people in this movie who don't have lines, their whole role is to just be like, wow. Oh my God. Wow. Like everyone, everyone just stops what they're doing. It's right after a fucking world war. And everyone's just like, Oh my God, Jerry, he's again dancing. He has chewing gum sometimes. And the, and the kids kind of like, to me, it was just like, God, we are unbearable. Like I really was like an American in Paris needs to die. Like <laughs> Maybe like you say that, and this is maybe going into kind of too much, like deep textual analysis for so late in the, the show. But okay. like, but maybe there is a kind of degree about, like, you know, what it meant to, like, you, you think this is the era of, like, the Marshall Plan taking effect, like, American money in Paris. And maybe there is this sort of, like, over like, a, a, a deeper meaning in which they are talking about this sort of, like, joy and brightness that American cinema is kind of reinfusing into the poetic ideal of Paris. But perhaps you could let other essays have been written. But here's the thing perhaps you could let other filmmakers from other countries, not America, say that message maybe we shouldn't maybe yeah. should be americans being like you're welcome it's it's, <laughs> it's a real kind of like american cinema doing like the jerk off motion to french cinema yeah. it's like oh you were just bombed out like here's one of your dancers in technicolor being seduced for no reason by a 39 year old former gi yeah so uh <laughs> that's our take on great change in time definitely, american definitely check it out <laughs> Um, Use our follow our link, (laughs) (laughs) like and subscribe, and we'll be back in a moment with Mary Fuck Kill. And now it's time for our favorite segment, Mary Fuck Kill. So this was tricky for me because I think everybody in this movie is a solid kill yeah. with the exceptions of Henri and Lise who kind of play minor roles in the film as uh, like random acquaintance whose girlfriend I shouldn't want to fuck right. and sex object, yeah. um, vaguely sentient sex object. So I've pulled enough huh? and I've abstracted. Now, because we're Americans in Paris, you may pick two lovers. Three of us. Oh, I keep forgetting about you. Like I'm not, <laughs> not being American, not in, <laughs> not you in general. Not the red direct you're not American. This was a two-person podcast until a minute ago. We actually cut the scream when Chris said that because I didn't even know he was here. <laughs> Okay, so on this week's Mary Fuck Kill, Chris is killing me three times. <laughs> no. So I have generalized because we're in France. We may have two lovers. 
Oh. So we have four choices total. Ooh. Two lovers, one partner, one Mary, okay. and uh, one kill. Okay. Because that's all we can get away with. Okay. Okay. Your choices are a dancer, a pianist, a singer, and a painter. Ooh. A dancer, a singer, a pianist, a painter. Right. It's, it's, it's a tricky one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, off the, you know, off the top of the bat, and this is not, um, I, I feel bad about saying this, but I'm probably going to kill the pianist. Wow, really? Yeah, because, I mean, I... I those With those hands? <laughs> Genuinely, I was like, rethink. <laughs> you got a singer in there. <laughs> well, I mean... <laughs> I'm just saying it. <laughs> how big are Paris apartments? How loud are those voices? You know? How many times? Look, we were saying, I'll build a stairway to paradise in uh, the I Got Rhythm. They're bangers. How many times in one day can you hear somebody sing those songs without doing a murder by accident? Exactly. That is true. I, so I, to, in, in my defense, the, the reason why is that I, I have a huge, huge amount of respect for classical musicians, mm -hmm. but I don't know if I would necessarily want to be in a relationship with one, just generically speaking, mm -hmm. because... They are some of the most intense people who you're ever likely to meet, particularly like a, a, a concert pianist is somebody who needs to practice like eight hours a day just to sort yeah. of like keep uh, keep steady. Maybe I shouldn't kill them just out of respect for what they do. But like it's, it's like as someone to have any like intimate relationship with. I'm not 100% against it, but in a kind of generic <laughs> sense, I'm going to be killing the pianist just because I don't know if I can deal with that intensity. Um, that's the first thing that came to mind. Uh -huh. I'm probably going to fuck the dancer. Oh, hello. Uh, right. Because that obviously makes sense. Um, it was the artist and the painter and the singer, the painter and the singer. Uh -huh. um, uh, let's say I'll, I'll also I'll fuck the singer as well because just to see if you can get her to hit those high notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to say. <laughs> so I said it for you. He's not breaking the glass. I'm not breaking the glass. Oh. I'm quite jealous of the idea of being a painter, mm. being an artist. So you do paint. We, yes, <laughs> I do, but very badly. Um, but the idea of that being your medium of artistic expression i think is it, it's like it, it's lovely you're you're working mm. in space you're working physically um it's, it's wonderful it, it's wonderful it's yeah well. it's got it's got none of the um it's got none of the kind of like you know nasty kind of like you know you know hunched over your computer screen that uh writing does so i mean so just as a sort of like the kind of artist that I would almost aspire to be and know that I never could be and an aesthetic that I would like to live with. I'm mainly here for the apartment, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but fair. I would be marrying the artist. So that's my answer. Okay. Um, so I would marry the pianist for exactly the reasons that Chris would kill them. <laughs> They're busy for eight hours. <laughs> I have so much time for my two lovers, the dancer and the painter, um, the dancer for obvious reasons, I think. And the painter, because I've always wanted to be painted by someone who thinks I'm the sexiest. Like uh, one of the French girls. I want to be like one of your French girls. And then I'm 100% too sweet killing that singer. We don't need that. We've got enough 
on our hands. Two dead singers over here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Same Z's. Same Z's. Um, so I am also going to I'm gonna fuck the dancer. Hello. Those hips. Uh don't lie. They don't lie. <laughs> they do. I was like, I can't believe it hanging there. <laughs> and uh I will fuck the pianist. Mm-hmm. For the hands. For the hands. I understand that. For the hands. Yeah. Look. Um and uh yeah, I'll marry I'll marry the painter. Um look, we're not in any kind of competition. Also with the dancer, right? There are fewer men male dancers than women dancers. Mm-hmm. I primarily identify as straight. Mm-hmm. Um, some exceptions. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the dancer. And we will be taking applications later. Goodbye. And I'm way too jealous for like my primary partner. I say that like I'm polyamorous. I am nowhere near mentally well enough for that. (laughs) For the person I am married to, for my husband, as they are sometimes known uh, when they are men, to (laughs) go off into a room of women dancers every day. Are you kidding me? Excuse me? Excuse me. Uh, No. The painter? You want to be alone with your paintings and your thoughts of French girls? Okay. You know, I'm not a monster. Like, you can think about the French girls that you painted. You can paint the French girls even. Uh, but you're in the studio where I can surveil you. Yeah. <laughs> um, this may be my least mentally well <laughs> Mary fuck kill, which is saying something. No, no, I've chosen someone who's so single-minded in their pursuit that they could never look at anybody else as my husband. So, like, think about that. <laughs> right. Um, and he's busy, so I don't have to take care of them. Woo, <laughs> so, my marriage. <laughs> somehow... Out of all of us, Chris has once again come off as the most stable. <laughs> well, not necessarily. I mean, like, I, also, I feel very bad about the. Uh, it, it was a close-run thing with the singer and the pianist, to be honest. Can I give an honorable mention, Kill? Yeah. Um, do you remember the black and white party? The girl whose only thing is that she falls off the balcony and waits for someone to catch her. <laughs> She's my second kill. <laughs> Wait, no. Just let her drop. I, yeah. I, 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 sorry, I love that bit. No. Nope. Because I was like. Oh, I love the bit, but I hate her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I can't marry the bit. <laughs> <And> <laughs> that was Mary Fuck Kill. <laughs>